A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello. And welcome to the news meeting. This is the podcast where we bring you into the newsroom to hear the arguments that happen in meetings just like this every day. Three journalists are going to pitch their top story of the week to me. And together we're going to try and make sense of what the story is, why it matters, and which one should lead the news. I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise. And I used to be the editor of the Times newspaper. I was then the director of BBC News. And so my job is to try and make a judgment about what the running order should be. From Podimo and Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. And joining me to pitch their stories this week are Jess Winch, who's Tortoise's news editor. She used to be the foreign editor at The Telegraph. Welcome, Jess. Hello. And Andrew Butler, who's Tortoise's head of social media. Hi, James. Hello, Andrew. And Alexi Mostras, who is the head of investigations at Tortoise, the host of the podcast Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. Hey. So before we hear what they think mattered most this week... Let's have a quick reminder of what's happened in the past seven days. Hundreds of thousands of protesters in France have staged more strikes and more rallies against the government's pension reforms, with some demonstrators clashing with riot police. The candidate selected for the position of First Minister is Hamza Youssef. William Hill was fined a record £19.2 million for allowing customers to bet thousands of pounds. A brand new customer, a new account opened, lost £23,000 in 20 minutes. Prince Harry was back in court. He says he wants to expose the alleged wrongdoing of tabloid journalists who he calls criminals. Your testimony to the jury here today is Mr. Sanderson skied into you. I was skied directly into. I heard something I've never heard at a ski resort, and that was a blood-curdling scream. And then, boom. All right, we're going to start with what we think we should be covering this week. I'm going to ask each of you, give it to me in one line, long story short. Jess, what's your story? Missing the boat. Andrew? Glazers show a window into the new world. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's the pun of the week. Okay, very, very good. Alexi? King Solomon's Wines. King Solomon's Wines. By the way, that sounds like the name of an off-license. I'm not sure that's a story. All right, well, why don't we get started? Uh, Jess, uh, Missing the Boat. So this is a story about uh, asylum seekers and migration, but it's more about how all the headlines you might have read this week, I think, miss the real story. 
A lot of UK newspapers this week have been full of government plans to move asylum seekers to military bases, possibly barges, disused cruise ships, to limit the cost of the use of hotels. But the problem with this is that there's no substance to it. Uh, There are no barges, uh, and even the idea of using barges to house asylum seekers has been floated before it hasn't happened, unlikely to happen now. Uh, And the idea was ruled out as recently as last year by the Home Office because, according to Bloomberg, it would end up being even more expensive than housing them in hotels. The story I would like to get to is, is much bigger than the UK. It's a story about how we get to a place where political rhetoric has hardened to such a degree that uh, you can't have any kind of rational conversation about how to deal with asylum seekers and to have effective border control. You have a situation in a lot of countries that consider themselves Western liberal democracies that are getting harsher and harsher in how they talk about refugees, how they talk about asylum seekers. And that, I think, leads to the kind of situations you see in the detention centre in Mexico this week where a fire broke out footage went viral and you saw in this footage guards walking away from asylum seekers who were locked in cells as flames and smoke kind of increasingly covered the view of the camera but i think taking a big a big step back from rows over headlines and barges and um sort of nonsense claims like that and you you've got to think how did we get to this big pick how do we get to this place as a, as a as a sort of global attitude towards asylum seekers that in no way even comes close to trying to address the real, very real problems we have. Can we do the talk about the Mexican detention centre fire and the deaths there and the barges separately? Because I appreciate the the thread, but there's several stories. (laughs) uh, But the reason I say that is I, I, I love and hate the fact that you brought this story, right? Because on the one hand, I think that the hate is this is one of those stories where the political priorities of the Prime Minister have for some reason dictated the running order of the media and I can't understand why this story that seems such an act of signal over substance, so clearly a piece of political dog whistling rather than a substantial answer to a much bigger immigration issue i.e. an immigration issue that goes way beyond asylum seekers, that's where the real numbers are, Mm -hmm how that gets to dominate the headlines and the running orders of the media. So that's the reason I'm like, let's just not talk about it. Let's be better than them. The reason I love it is that actually that's really interesting to me. It's really interesting what happens, how should the news respond when politicians, if you like, try to set an agenda for what happens. Rishi Sunak has said here that my five priorities and made small boats one of them. Mm -hmm. Is it possible for the news media to say, okay, well, that's important to you, my friend, but it's not what we think are the most important things in the country. And so when you choose to make a point of discussing small boats or asylum seekers or general public anxiety around those issues, we're going to focus on something else. We're going to focus on education or hospital times or dignity and loneliness. You know, we're going to have a different agenda because we think that's what's more important. How do you think, Jess, a newsroom should respond when the government says it's important, but you, in effect, are saying no, something else is? You don't just say that the government is has briefed this out, the fact that, oh, this is going to cut the farce of, of housing 
migrants in hotels. You point out that this has been briefed, I think, I've heard six times mm -hmm. in the past couple of years. It has never happened. Mm -hmm. The only reason they're stuck in this situation is because they have become so bad at tackling the asylum backlog. Uh, because the number of claims being processed has just has gone down dramatically, and they're, they're not dealing with that. You you talk to you talk to people who are impacted by this ineptitude and the this lack of decision making, and you 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 try and give people the full the full picture. It's not a question of someone clicking over here and you just repeating what you hear. It's you trying to take a step back and think. But, but what why, do people need to know? But why are you saying, OK, this is the top story of the week? Because no, what you're essentially I'm saying, saying it's not. that. So, so it's just, I appreciate this is a long thread. I'm saying that what you've seen in the news this week about migration is not the story of the week. So what is the, the story? The story of the week is about how this political rhetoric around the world, not just in the UK, is leading to situations as we've seen in Mexico. Oh, I see. And it's, the bigger, it's, it's this bigger picture question, really, that I would like to explore of how we, get, how we got here. So you would lead on Mexico? As a yes, if I was doing this, probably I've buried the lead, haven't I? <laughs> I think you may have done. Just tell us the Mexico. How many people died in Mexico, and who were they, and what actually happened? So there were thirty-nine people who died. I think another twenty-seven who were injured. Um, they included people from Guatemala, Honduras, Venezuela, El Salvador, Colombia, and Ecuador. And they were being held there. And I think I've seen reports that I think the fire might have been started by someone. Uh, who was held there and in protest at the threat of being deported. Right. And then the footage that went viral was, as I said, showing showing guards sort of walking away as you saw flames coming in and, and leaving the migrants locked in locked in the cells. But I mention it as well because it's it comes at a time when there are also record crossings of asylum seekers from Mexico to the US mm. and both Trump and Biden have been putting a lot of pressure on Mexico to keep the numbers down to contain it likewise I think Canada is pushing back on the US to try and stop yeah. migrants crossing from their shared border so there's I think what I would like to read what I would like to see is is a piece that is looking at these disparate borders these this, this growing problem of migration increasing and yet countries that like to think of themselves as leading the way on upholding international law, but in this instance have no right to preach to anybody because they're all just sticking their fingers in their ears and pretending that it's not their problem. Alexi, what do you think? Um, I actually think this is a really important story, and I don't think the fact that the government will probably never actually put a migrant on a barge is necessarily that important because, for me, what the important, newsworthy, worrying thing is is a kind of... Uh, concerted attempt by the government to confer the status of another on an asylum seeker. You know, whether it's you put them in an offshore barge or you put them in a military camp or you, you put a tag on them to show that they're different from everyone else. This is a, a, a really dangerous and kind of concrete uh, example of populism where you're taking a category of people and you're saying, don't worry, we're going to treat them differently from everyone else. And for, for me, whether or not that actually happens is is not actually critical to the news value of the story. The news value of the story is is inherent in, in actually the, the, what, what's happening. What, in the in politics the and the culture we create. Yeah. Andrew, what do you think? I went back actually um, the, earlier this week on this story to look at what we said about our podcast, which was Hostile Environment. And um, 
and, and we said we've told the stories of migrants many times at, at Tortoise, but um, at the back of them all is the Home Office, mm-hmm. um, a, a monument to intransigence, intransigence. Yeah. and I think that's still. I mean, that is still that is the story. And the government can essentially try and force your hand into telling these stories, but the story is the story that we've told last year. Alexi? I think the Home Office is a really good place to 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 look. I mean, I, I was, you know, it's, it reminds me a bit of a kind of smaller version of Trump's build build the wall mm-hmm. promise. You know, just because there, there's no not going to be a wall or there was 200 miles of wall or whatever it ended up being doesn't mean that his his promise, his rhetoric around the wall isn't important in itself in determining, in allowing us as journalists to show people, you know, where this person as a politician is coming from, what their motivations are and what drives them. Let's go to our next story. Um, Andrew, it, I had that lovely moment when you said the Glazers open a window on sport. Is that what you the said? The Glazers show a window into the new world. The Glazers yeah. show a window into the new world. It took me a moment to be like, <laughs> what is that? And I thought, OK, that's brilliant. So even if the story is going to be about football and I'm not going to understand it, I already love it just for the pun. Well, it, might, it. it doesn't necessarily have to be about football. It <laughs> is about a football club. But this is the story that Manchester United is for sale and that the bidding process has ended and we're currently in limbo. And now limbo is bad for newsrooms because it's like a so what, like, well, nothing's we actually happened. But I think this is the perfect time for this story because we're waiting to hear who Rain Group, which is the bank selling, selling the club, have selected as their preferred bidder. And the thing about this story is that, mercifully for you, James, I don't need to mention any players. You don't need to know who the Manchester manager, Manchester United manager is. You don't need to know where they are in the Premier League table. But this is about an enormous British institution and asset being sold and whatever direction it takes are all really intriguing. Um, it's basically a story about global Britain and, and Britain as it is today. Assets that are worth billions being bought potentially by foreign states and capitalising on um, one of the great British exports that we still have left remaining in this country, which is the Premier League. And if we're lucky, the story even stretches to free ports, which we can get onto. <laughs> we'll come to that in a minute. Right, but let's, let's go one step at a time. So firstly, who are the Glazers? The Glazers are the family who took ownership of Manchester United in 2005. They bought the club uh, for £800 million. They've been um, unpopular as owners. Why? Um, they bought the club initially with a leveraged buyout already. So lots you're, of debt. Yeah, you're loading the club on with lots of debt. But they've also made a lot of money, um, and the, the club will eventually be um, debt-free. They've made a lot of money out of the club. But they've seen in the time that they've um, uh, owned the club uh, a decline in success on the pitch, um, but great success off the pitch in terms of commercial value. And for fans, they don't like the fact that an owner can essentially just siphon off or take profits out of the club without reinvesting it into better things. So what's what's the expected price tag? Uh, they want £6 billion for it, having bought it for £800 million um, pounds back in 2005. And just talk us through the bidders. The first bidder is um, Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Jassim bin Hamid Al-Tani, who's the chairman of the Qatar Islamic Bank, QIB. It's basically owns, all Qatar government yeah. money. right? The second bidder is Jim Ratcliffe, uh, who made his fortune through petrochemical uh, company Ineos. He was born in Greater Manchester, is now lives in Monaco uh, and with all the benefits that that, that has. Um, but he's got a history of investing in sports brands. He he now runs Ineos Ray, uh, Cycling, which 
was Team Sky um, Cycling, a sailing team, Ineos Britannia, um, and also another football team, which is French Ligue 1 uh, club, uh, Nice. Then there's a third bidder, Elliott Investment Management. Now, they only want a minority stake in the club. Uh, they're an, uh, an American investment firm. They only want a minority stake, which could facilitate the Glazers improving Old Trafford as a stadium, which would then increase the value of the club for a future sale, which it looks like that might be the route they want to take. So what is the future world that the Glazers have given us a insight into? It seems, it seems to me as though the future world is the rising value of Premier League football clubs. Yeah, and, and, and that, is, that is it. I think what we saw was um, a bit of a taste of this last year where Chelsea were bought by Todd Bowley's group uh, for £4.25 billion. And that was a, a takeover of a football club that had to be taken over because Roman Abramovich was uh, was sanctioned by mm. that point. So they had to sell the club mm. and they still got £4.25 billion for it. Now, Abramovich didn't receive any of that money um, because of the, it would be against uh, the terms of his, his sanctions. But what we are talking about is, uh, and I think this is why now is the time to talk about it rather than who actually eventually owns it because what it shows you is a window into who's interested in buying. So if it just went from one American investment firm to another investment firm, the conclusion that you could get from that is Americans just want to buy other American assets wherever they are in the in the in the world. At the moment we have Qatar coming off the back of a World Cup, Jim Ratcliffe, uh, a petrochemicals giant who is English but also an American uh, investment. investment as well. And now, that because of those three bids, I think it's fascinating to know when the UK looks for investment for different things, who's buying, and so it seems like it's everyone in the world. You're not a Man United fan. No, far from it. I didn't mean to sound so... Like, yeah. Okay, well, there goes our impartiality on that story. But... but Andrew, for those people who are Man United friends, have you got any friends who are Man United yeah, friends? Yeah, a fair few. For them, what's the sort of exposed nerve ending in this story? What's the thing that matters most? The, the thing that matters most, and I think you can ask Newcastle fans about this after their Saudi takeover, for most is success and is winning trophies and being back on the top of the pile. That's amazing. Which is Which I think, purely because this is not the type of football that I'm into let's say that I won't give away who I do support but it's a, a, a long way away from Manchester United in <laughs> terms of and, scale popularity why don't, why don't we discuss this you're a secret fan of a football club who who is the football club no I'm that, not who far you from a secret fan who I support a uh, league two club Leighton Orient who oh. get five or six thousand fans to their games seven right. or eight thousand this season because we're doing actually quite well but um but yeah we were bought for we I say we Leighton Orient were bought for four or five million pounds um uh, four years ago that's a different scale we're not talking of billions and so. and, and, and just just as a Leighton Orient fan, yeah. what do you feel about um, inequality in football? I don't mean I inequality in the country, I mean the inequality of the clubs. I'm conflicted by this because I've always compared the football that I like as Amdram versus going to the West End. Yes. I like supporting my local club. They're, they're the heart of everything that I've done pretty much in my life. I've always liked it. I will always support it. But going to the West End is nice as well. Right. So when I go to watch Premier League games, I can appreciate the fact that 
money has has caused this money has brought in these amazing stadiums they bring in the best players they bring in investment into the country as well if if you know in theory and i know this isn't particularly how it works but if all premier league players paid their taxes in the correct way the the country would do very well from it alexi what do you think of this story I'm I'm so sorry, but I just don't care about it at all. I just I just, I don't like football, and but I can see the importance of football to to both society and the economy. But like and also life by and the way. life yes. fine. Yeah. Well, blah blah. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> but like, who owns who owns this club? I don't I don't understand Doesn't why it will difference. make a difference to anyone but the fans and maybe not even that. So it's so interesting. So hard to read where Alexi sits <laughs> on this particular story. <laughs> Jess, you. I'm more on the fence. I don't. I didn't know a lot of this detail. So for me, as someone who doesn't follow football, I like it from the sense of it tells me something about football as not not as a sport, but as a business and where that business is going. That I think is quite interesting. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Let's go to the third and final story to yours, Alexi, and then we'll be able to make a judgment on the running order, what's, what leads and why. Alexi, yours was Mine. Solomon King Solomon's Wines. King Solomon's Wines. W-H-I-N. Oh, you didn't explain that? Sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. There were puns within puns. Go ahead. So, yeah, it's the judicial crisis in Israel. Um, that's my story of the week. And so in the last seven days, you've probably seen the biggest ever... Uh, series of protests in, in Israel's history. Thousands of people on the street, Israeli flags just plastering the, the, the streets. Everyone is striking or was striking. Trade unions, universities, even the military reservists are going on strike or refusing to turn up uh, for duty. Um, and this is all about Benjamin Netanyahu's proposed judicial reforms. He and his hard-right coalition want the power to appoint Supreme Court justices, and in some circumstances to overrule their decisions. And a huge number of kind of centrist, secular Israelis see that as a fundamental threat 
to democracy. And these protests have been bubbling for a couple of months, but um, on Monday night, they sort of reached their, their climax, their boiling point. And Netanyahu had to sort of deliver this really kind of humiliating statement to his nation where he compared himself to King Solomon uh, and said he wasn't prepared to tear his country apart. And he paused these judicial reforms. So in a way, you could say, well, crisis averted. But it seems like, A, it's a short-term sticking plaster rather than a sort of substantial solution. And B, it sort of doesn't kind of answer the question of this real, really worrying schism in what's the only democracy in the whole in the Middle East, in the region. Um, it says something really important about Netanyahu himself and his weakness in the face of this growing body of hard right supporters. Uh, and it also says something quite important about the shift in Israel from um, the central debate being what to do about Israel and Palestine to a more insular debate about what to do about Israel itself. Can you explain one thing I'm really struggling to get to the bottom of in this story is what Netanyahu and the coalition on the right hope to achieve by having some kind of control over the Supreme Court itself? I I, th I think that they um, have objected quite strongly to various historic Supreme Court rulings. Like there was a, it doesn't seem like much, but in the context that we're talking about, it was it was hugely controversial. The Supreme Court ruled that there could be no exception to military service for religious study, for example. And a lot of people got very, very cross about that who were on the religious side of the fence in Israel. Um, and there were, there, there's a sort of more, tangible issue around settlements as well. The Supreme Court has acted as a break on quite a lot of settlement building, which uh, the hard right uh, and, and members of the Likud party don't don't think is proportionate and 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 what they're what they the, the way that they try to pitch it is that this is this is actually not that controversial that Canada has a similar system that mm. America has a similar system but the Israelis or, or quite a lot of Israelis just didn't didn't buy it and the the the, the failure of the military reservists in Israel, which is overwhelmingly centred around the military in all sorts of different ways, the failure of them to turn up for duty was the, 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 the real kind of sh shock to the system that kind of set all this off. I think it's one of those stories where for a large part of my working life as a journalist, we were sitting around talking about the difficulty of implementing the Oslo Accords, yeah. the structural problems with the two-state solution, and then what with one thing or another, and it might have been COVID, or it might have been Brexit, or it might have been financial crisis, and in all of those periods of time within Israel, obviously chapters in the Israeli-Palestinian story, I feel like I stopped paying sufficient attention to what was happening in the domestic politics of Israel, and you look up and you find that support for the two-state solution, as you say, Alexei, has become this tiny minority, yeah. and an idea that seemed like it was fringe a decade or two ago, Greater Israel, a, a much bigger space, totally controlled... Is now being shown on Israel, maps. Yes, is yes. back and is being considered yes. as, as not just a mainstream idea, but in terms of the politics, the not if, if not the dominant idea, the one with a good deal of political momentum. Mm. And that's just really... I think it's interesting as well this week that the concessions that Netanyahu made were not to the critics of the policy, 
but to the hard right members of his coalition with the promise to have a uh, sort of national guard created a sort of civil national guard so it was yeah. giving giving more power to the kind of home home office element yes it's an interesting one too isn't it your point about the weakness of netanyahu given how incredibly successful he's been mm. as a politician, how yes. he's dominated politics for 20 years, you find himself in a position where he sacks his defence minister yeah. and then loses control of the political conversation. Yes. Well, it's probably too early to write him off, though, right? As you say, he's kind of bought himself some time he, now. So. Yes. He's for, yeah, he's the great survivor, isn't exactly. he? Exactly. Well, Andrew, what do you think of the story? I, I was really intrigued by... There's, a, there's an added element to this, which was the fact that um, Israel's tech sector essentially threatened to relocate um, because of this as well. Now, obviously, army reservists, when they're making up a, a decent um, chunk of the army, them not turning up to work is is, is one thing. But the tech, to, uh, the tech sector pullout is really interesting, which made me think and, and question, are we seeing um, governments just generally getting weaker? Because if an entire sector, especially one as strong as Israel's tech sector, just says no, we're not having that. The government will eventually have to back down, and um, and so I, I, I saw that line and was quite taken by it because I suddenly thought, hang on, you don't need to go to the polling booths or you don't need to particularly protest. An entire sector can just say, if you do this, we'll all leave, and the government go, hang on, no, that's not what we wanted. And so I do wonder if governments are just um, getting weaker with a more connected, globalised world. Those are the stories. In a moment, I need to make a decision about the running order, which one leads, what follows, and in what order. Before we do that, though, um, I want to hear from each of the three of you. Which one that you think you'd put on top? But as you'll know, you can't choose your own. Alexa, you go first. I'm going to go with small small boats. Jess? Israel. Andrew? Israel. Well, first, let me start with your story, Jess. I remember, and I'm still a little puzzled by this, I remember... At school, I, I did uh, homework once, and I got A slash E. I remember saying to the teacher, what's that? They said, well, bits of it were really good, and bits of it really weren't. And, and my view Ouch. of the barges... Oh. Uh, my view of the barges story is that, to a certain extent, I don't want to... But again, I said the barges were not the story. I know. So but... if that's my E... OK, shall we run you through the lead on that story? Today, we can exclusively reveal that politicians <laughs> saying things about barges are not necessarily the story, comma, whereas the real story is actually a story about neglect of asylum seekers in a horrific incident in Mexico, full stop. New paragraph, this is about a broader trend in politics. I just think you, you're trying to make a story there that is teeing off what itself is an exercise that's political but doesn't get you to what what really matters most this week. I completely understand, and also I think I'm reacting to the extent to which the mainstream news media this week have all fallen for it. So it leads the front pages, as Alexi said, it's, or as you said, sorry, it's been briefed out, you know, half a dozen times, but we still need the news on it. <laughs> now... <laughs> Nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> so I so I would run I'd run barges third. Oh, or not barges. I know it you're wasn't saying... barges. <laughs> I would structure this whole story wrong. It's so, not barges. So I but I would still run Mexico third, probably, even though it's in many ways the most distressing story of the week. But I think I would probably run Mexico third, although I find, find that more difficult. So if the lead was Mexico mm-hmm. Which I did it, say it was. Top of the story, remember, was it, Mexico. In the, in the same week, if you said Mexico's the lead, right, 
in the same week that there's been the further othering of asylum seekers, mm -hmm. what would you do with that? You might run that second. <laughs> I'm really back and forth on that. This is really, this is really come on, scrappy. Love. <laughs> mean, you know, no, I think you would, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think you would. Okay, good point. All right, so there you just oh, got wait, dinged. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> All right, so hang on a second. Understand. You have to understand. Third place. I don't know what you know. There's, a, you know, the the, the the court of appeal or interruption <laughs> works here. All right, so Andrew, I, actually, really, really, I love the Man United story for all the reasons that I shouldn't, which is I love it because I think it tells you about two things that matter enormously, even if you don't know anything about, as is plainly evident, football. One is you actually understand, if you like, three archetypes of modern, modern power in finance. So there's Elliot, the activist investor, is an archetype. Ratcliffe, right, himself as the entrepreneur turned kind of tax exile um, brand activist, and of course Qatar, right, using petrodollar wealth to buy, you know, influence and access and security given its neighbourhood and its neighbours in the West. I think that's an amazing story. And I also think, although we didn't get into it, there's a story about what influences in a in a, in the world, what's the asset? Right? Is the asset the individuals? Is it the players? Is it the brand? I think all of that's great. That said, I've just got nobbled by Jess, so you're the third story. <laughs> um, not, barges, I... not barges, forgive me. Mexico and the politicization of asylum. Thank that's you. The, thank you very much. There, there was by the way, that's what the picture have been. Politicization <laughs> of asylum uh, is the second story. But the reason the I end think of asylum. That, the reason I think that you lead on Israel that's is that is that Israel is that coincidence of things where something incredibly surprising and significant happens at the same time, surprising just by the full scale of the public protests, that kind of complete uh, disruption of a country for constitutional principle is kind of extraordinary. You know, who went out to protest the appointment of a Supreme Court justice in a while? And the significance, of course, I think is actually greater than that. It's about what kind of country Israel is going to choose to be. That's important. But I also think that it appeals, even if you're not interested, and even if you're bored with Israeli-Palestine and you're, you're bored with the Middle East, I think that we talk too much about democracy in the context of voting, and we don't talk enough about it in terms of the essential institutions that are necessary for it. One of them is the law and the independence of the rule of law. And in that sense, you should put it at the top of the running order. So I will give you this running order, Israel, Mexico brackets, politicization of asylum, and Man United. That's the running order for this week. Well, that's it for this week's news meeting. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Alexi. And most of all, thank you for listening. I'm going to be away next week. So David Aronovich, the broadcaster and columnist, is going to be sitting in this, the editor's chair. You may know him, I'm sure you do. He's the presenter of Radio 4's Briefing Room and we used to work together at the time, so I'm looking forward to hearing what his news judgments are. He'll be joined by three more journalists who will all be trying to convince him that they've got the story that mattered most. Please do join him and them in the news meeting. And in the meantime, please rate and review the show on whatever podcast app you use. It really does help other people to find it.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Afua Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.